0: TV Mart stores are rooted in the communities we serve, and we are connected to the land in the same way our customers are. Whether you're an urban farmer, backyard chicken aficionado, traditional rancher, or anything in between, we offer just the right mix of homesteading, outdoor adventure, DIY, yard and garden, outdoor and workwear, husbandry, livestock, and pet supplies. Whether you're a dabbler or all-in, we're here to help and strive to offer a range of products that will meet the unique needs of our customers. PV Mart will always be there with the tools, equipment, indoor or outdoor wares, seed or feed, for everyday work, fun, or connecting to the land on a whole new level. For more information, go to pvmart.com. Hi, I'm Ian Sherwood. As a songwriter and musician, I've traveled through countless small towns, heard incredible stories, and witnessed some of the amazing ways in which people in towns and cities across this vast country have woven their lives into the land they live on. It's made me think about the way I interact with my own environment and the natural world, where my family's food comes from, what impact I'm having on the planet, and what we're all leaving behind for our kids to inherit. So, now I'm on a mission to learn about how I can tap back into the essence of where we all come from. Today, with so much at our fingertips, it's easy to lose sight of the most important connection we have. Welcome to Connected to the Land. Well, it's official. The homesteaders are taking over the planet. And really, why not? We all have something we can learn from them. Perhaps we should all be heading a little closer to becoming better homesteaders ourselves. As we get ready for another conversation in this homesteading series, I'm left to consider why it's becoming such a huge movement. Now, actually calling it a movement isn't right. It's really just living. And maybe those who are actively homesteading are finding ways to live a more connected life. As far as all the topics we've talked about on this podcast go, homesteading has to be the one that hits the nail on the head, that embodies that connection to the land. Probably because homesteading involves so many different things. So we never really scratched the surface with just one take on the lifestyle, the challenges, and the benefits of homesteading. So I called up another couple who have made the leap into becoming more self-sufficient and self-reliant. Dave and Amanda are the creators of the Wildstead YouTube channel and have been waving the homesteader's flag for over three years. We talked about the beauty of owning a sugar maple grove, why you shouldn't put birch syrup on your pancakes, and how chickens don't always come home to roost. Dave and Amanda, thank you so much for joining me on Connected to the Land.
1: Thanks for having us, again.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, listen, it's, it's my pleasure. I know you guys are very busy on the homestead these days. So, uh, you know, it's always great when people can take the time to chat. And, you know, originally, I, I want to be completely upfront. Folks at home won't know this, but originally we were supposed to speak yesterday, but you asked if we could postpone because I think there was a pig you were harvesting and it went a little longer than expected. Um. Did you get the job done in the end? We're still working on it. Oh, okay.
1: All right. It's a big job. Very large pig.
2: Okay. A big pig this year.
1: Oh man! And was this your pig? Oh, it's actually a pig that a friend raised for us. Oh, okay. All right.
2: Yeah, we have a little bit of arrangement where he raises a pig for us, and we raise birds for him that he will be using uh, as their their chicken, their meat birds. Oh,
0: okay. Is this is this someone who's in the community with you?
2: Yeah, he's, he's about an hour south from us. Right. And he's a friend from, yeah. from like high school for Dave.
0: Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. So an hour away, so in, in a homesteading community, a neighbor. Exactly. Yeah. Just down
1: the road. Down Just the down road the, and around the corner. Right. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, wow. Okay, so how big was his pig? I want to say about 300 pounds. Wow. Okay. <clears throat> uh, I haven't had the chance to weigh everything up yet, so I'm not quite sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, and how how long is that going to last you?
1: For the two of us, yeah, we, it'll last close to a year, if not the full year.
2: Yeah, well, we had a smaller one last year, and we're just finishing off the last of that. We actually just made some suet cakes uh, with the last of the lard we made last year. Right. So we can feed it to the birds, but uh, this one will last longer. The only thing that doesn't last mm. as long as we wish is the bacon, of course. Yes.
0: Ah, well, yes. <laughs> Yeah, Canadian mornings. You need the bacon. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, uh, listen, maybe we got a bit ahead of ourselves there. I wonder if maybe you can give me a bit of your of your background. What What were you folks doing before you decided to become full-fledged homesteaders? Uh,
2: well, I guess I'm not a full-fledged homesteader yet. I still work. Oh. I'm a biologist. Okay. Yeah, so I work on aquatic species, um, invasive species, and the species at risk. Mm-hmm. And so that's my oh. full-time job and Dave he does full-time homesteading.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm here full-time and I my grandparents were full-time homesteaders as I was growing up, so I spent a lot of their a lot of time with them. Okay. Yeah. Growing up and summers my entire summers were spent there, March break, Christmas break, things like that, so it just quickly became something that I wanted to carry on with. Yeah. I ended up moving into uh, the nursery and greenhouse industry and doing a little bit of work there, learning quite a bit about more advanced growing techniques. Okay. And then from there, I moved into the coffee industry, oh. where I was a green coffee buyer for a roastery. Okay. So that right. led me to visiting farms in producing countries and learning about organic agriculture there. And then from there, I ended up here. And it's just been a whirlwind of homesteading fun.
2: It's a learning process for us, the, everything, because this is our, I guess, our second official homestead. We started okay. off in, uh, well, I guess we started off small, kept mm. growing, went to Manitoba, had a homestead there. And then, and then we moved here and we have our growing from scratch, our homestead here. So it's still quite new. Um, we're just building from the ground up, which is bedrock up. So it has its oh. own
0: unique challenges, oh, wow, you're actually building you're you're building and growing on bedrock, yeah, basically, wow, okay. Um, okay, so but it does sound like it did start somewhere. Uh, so Amanda, maybe I'll ask you this. Did you have any kind of? Um, background in, well, I mean, so so much of your channel is is you explaining things like your canning techniques and and different things that you can do as as a homesteader. Like, did is this something you've always done a little bit of, as well as biology work, or is this something that's kind of new to you since since you and Dave have really kind of jumped in full feet?
2: Yeah, all those recipes are Dave's family's recipes, um, and also you know ones that we found from official channels like ball canning. And yeah, I didn't do that growing up. Um, uh. I did a lot of camping. Uh, like our holidays were always camping and canoe trips and stuff like that. Yeah. And my backyard is a forest, so I spent all my time. And that led me to my science career. Dave, I've always wanted to be a little bit more uh, self-reliant, but I didn't have the background to do that. And so mm. Dave has provided that and also just trial and error has helped me gain that experience.
0: Yeah, excellent. But it was something, obviously, that, that you had an interest in in doing. I mean, it's not, there are a lot of biologists out there who are not living on homesteads. So clearly there was something in you that was like, you know what, let's give this a try. Let's live a little more off the grid.
2: Oh, yeah, for sure.
0: Uh, you you say in, in your, you have sort of like a landing page video on your home, on your uh, on your YouTube channel, it's and you say something, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but in that video, you say to inspire folks to get out of the grooves of their normal lives and to try something new is 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 kind of the uh, um, the mandate of of your channel. Um, is that kind of where it started? Am I am I am I hitting it right there? Is that is that sort of the idea behind your channel? Is to get people out of their grooves of normal life?
1: Uh, yes, yeah. definitely, definitely, and a big part of that. Where we are is combining your land with the wilderness around you. Okay.
2: Yeah, so that's why we came up with the the title of our YouTube channel and of our homestead, Wilderstead. Yeah. Because originally we had a different title from Manitoba and it was the name that was given by the previous owners to the property. Uh-huh. And uh, we tried to bring it here, but it just didn't fit. And so we tried to figure out what it is that we were actually doing. And this is about the same time as we uh, made that video you're talking about. And we had to decide what it is that we thought the channel was going to be. Because up until then, it was almost created just as a way of um, documenting our lives for our friends and our family. And then it started to grow. And so we realized it was going to be more than that. And so Mm -hmm. we decided we really needed like a mission statement. Like, what do we want this channel to be if it's going to grow beyond what we originally planned it for. yeah, And so that's when we decided like, what do we do here that's different or maybe even not that different, but maybe not highlighted uh, as much in other channels. And so we decided it was the fact that we do have a property here that we use as our homestead, but we the wilderness plays such a huge role in the way that we're trying to be more self-reliant yeah. that we decided to go with, it's a wilderness homestead or a wilderstead.
0: Yeah. Uh, Dave, you, you mentioned something, uh, said something just uh, just a couple minutes ago about um, joining your land with the wilderness around you. I wonder if maybe you can go into that a little more. Tell me what that's all about.
1: Um, I think we've lost the connection with the wilderness. A lot of us have anyways. <clears throat> and understanding what is available out there for us, whether that be mm. food or just therapy, with walking around and hiking and enjoying what you see out there. And I gotta think of a way to phrase this properly. Mm-hmm. Operating on less of a supply kind of a world and more of a demand world okay. where we're not taking we're not taking more than we need from the land around us. Right. Right.
2: One thing that we want to be important for our homestead as well is. That you won't be able to see a distinct line on a map between where our homestead starts mm-hmm. and where the land around us does we want it to be integrated and like the nature is most useful when it's left in its natural state that's why they call it right. nature right i'm not yeah. using my, my words here but so <laughs> that's why we want to <laughs> <laughs> So we want it to be more of like when we got here, there was land cleared and we don't really want to clear any more land. We're actually trying to repopulate the cleared land with the natural environment that should be here. Right. um, Because we feel like we can get the best use of the wilderness um, if we try to leave it in its natural state.
0: Yeah. Right.
2: And so another way that we try to incorporate the nature is through a lot of our food resources actually come from, the land, so all yeah. over we have wild mushrooms that we forage, uh, fiddleheads. We fish. We do not hunt yet, but that's always something that we keep in mind. Yeah, and is just something that we realize that we're not going to be able to produce everything that we need here on the property in a sustainable way, and so we re- we need to use some of the surrounding wilderness. We need to connect with that wilderness and let it. Um, provide some of our needs.
0: Wow. I mean, that's amazing. How close do you think you are to being sustained by the wilderness and your farm, if you were to take all that in consideration? Are you still making trips into town, into the grocery store, or do you feel like you're pretty close?
2: I would say we're not close yet. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) We're on our way. Yeah. To be completely honest, no, not even. Uh, We're growing, right? So. We, we produce all of our vegetables we use in the winter, in the, in the summer, and most of the vegetables we use in the winter. Yeah. We produce or have those relationships to produce all of our meat except for cattle, but we have, we have hopefully a connection for that for next year. Uh, we're raising our own chickens. We've just started raising rabbits for meat. This is going to be a, oh, quite okay. a learning experience because yeah. I've never been experienced with that, but we're trying to learn. Mm-hmm. And, but we'll never be able to produce our own coffee. Or our own uh, salt, even though we're trying to work on that as much as we can. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. But there's always things that we're going to require to be brought in. Mm-hmm. And we're just slowly picking away at what can we do to re- to reduce that.
1: A large amount of what we do purchase, I would almost consider luxury.
2: Yeah, for sure. Right. Like our right. chocolate.
0: And yeah. <laughs> our yeah. treats. I talked to... Uh, um, a couple out west and they they went a they went a full year without eating anything that wasn't uh either grown or harvested on their on their own land and it was tough but it was but they also lived next to the ocean so they had they had the ability to to grab the salt from the ocean if they wanted to garnish and they were they were growing some stevia as well for sugar for sweetness uh, but so much of what you you were saying there Amanda is is really kind of, in line with with what I'm hearing from you know from other homesteaders, and I love the idea of the seamless transition between you know your own property and the wilderness around. Um, I was talking to uh, Paul Lafrance, who makes well, he builds back decks, and he was on the podcast a few months back. And his philosophy of building a transition between your home and your yard sort of was the same idea where, I mean, he had just had a very different idea about it's not just, you know, a bunch of lumber on the backyard to keep your feet off the wet grass. Like he actually considers it to be a very important transition between, you know, most of the people he was working with lived in the suburbs, but he wanted to try to find a way to transition from, you know, what the space that you lived in into the outdoor space. And that idea of, you know, this is our farm, but we're also going to use the surrounding wilderness if it's available to us to help us sustain ourselves. Um, I, I think that's that's wonderful and sort of blurring the lines between, you know, maybe what the municipality says is your property line and actually what's available to you.
2: Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. The critical transition zone. Yeah, right. I mean, I don't want to... You want to put a science word in there.
0: Yeah, we're all about the science words. So drop them as much as you want. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to talk a little bit about winter growing as well. So I thought maybe... uh, Dave, you've you've got some experience here, so we're looking for your wisdom. Um, you know, there are a lot of homesteaders out there who are becoming more aware of the fact that you can grow year round now. I mean, I remember uh, when I when I was a kid, we just you know there was there was a garden in the yard, and neighbors had gardens. And, you know, as soon as the weather got a little chilly, that was it. They got all wrapped up and then you just went to the grocery store. But there are a lot of people out there who are now trying to grow year round. So how how successful have you been with that uh, in the last few years?
1: Um, I would say mildly successful. Every year gets a little better. Mm -hmm. Uh, One thing that I've definitely learned is planning ahead and starting specific plants or crops that you would like to be growing through the winter right starting those in late summer so that when when the the winter the late fall and winter season hits you have plants that are either mature or maturing yeah it, it's quite difficult to start seed at this time of year without artificial lighting right so if you're using artificial lighting <clears throat> you're you're much better off than just going with the sunlight just because of the angle of the sun at this time of year yeah. and the, the number of hours of sunlight that you get. So for example, I have some lettuce seed that I've started in the greenhouse that is about four weeks old now that looks like it would be about five days old if it was the summertime.
0: Okay. Okay. All right.
1: But the other plants that we have in there that, uh, that were mature or maturing, like our kale and our celery mm-hmm. and our onions and our peppers, those are all still providing fresh produce for us. Okay. And we're December 15th now, so, so that's not too bad. We, we haven't touched uh, our frozen stash of uh, peppers and celery. We're still eating fresh with those two.
0: I mean, that's kind of amazing. Like We're we're coming up on Christmas, and and you're still – picking things off the vine and out of the ground in your greenhouse. Um, so can you give me a list of, of kind of what, I know you mentioned a few things there. Is there anything else that that you're growing right now that you, that you can say actually grows fairly well if you look after it and, and have the proper infrastructure this time of year?
2: Well, we have some herbs growing. Uh, we've okay. also started radish. and
0: You've started radish? Yes. Okay.
2: Radish seeds are more of a cold crop. You were supposed to start those early in the spring. So they're seem to be doing okay in the, the fall. They're also slowly growing though. Yeah. They're p- quite
1: slow. Um that that about
2: That's about it we have right now. Yeah. yeah. Potatoes is something we're planning on planting. Yeah.
1: And come January, I will be installing lights in part of one of our greenhouses here. Uh, part of that is to get a head start on some of our seedlings for the spring. There are some things that I start very early because we are quite far north and we need to have larger plants going into the ground come May because our season is short. It really comes to an end around September 15th or so. Mm -hmm.
2: This year was longer.
1: Yeah, this year was longer. Uh, Uh,
2: We also sprout uh, seeds for us and for our livestock just to give them something green throughout the winter yeah. throughout the winter okay all right and so are the you micro green
0: and you have you have uh, infrastructure like you have a greenhouse or greenhouses outside of where you're living and this is where you're doing most of your growing is that right or are you growing inside your home as well
1: no our our house is extremely small so we don't have much room in here um the our glass greenhouse is a four-season greenhouse. It's heated with wood, with electric heat backup. Oh, okay. And basically, the the electric heater is just a ceiling mount garage type heater. Because
2: it's also quite small. It's was it twelve by ten or something? Yeah, like that?
1: in around there, um, which is controlled by a thermostat set at a whatever temperature you would like to set it at, We keep it around 10 degrees in there. Okay. But if you
2: had space indoors, like in your basement, mm-hmm. uh, where you can have grow lights, that's ideally where you would have a winter growing because then you, have, you don't have to heat it. It would just be your ambient heat of the house and you would just yeah. be adding the light. But we don't have a basement. Again, as we said before, we're built on bedrock. So yeah. there's no digging down here. <laughs>
0: So, uh, tell me some of the other challenges that you're facing in in winter as as a grower when trying to to grow, you know, uh, the things that you mentioned, or or maybe some things that you're thinking about growing.
2: Uh, one of the challenges we faced uh, last year was that our greenhouse it's it it's a bunch of glass doors and wood, and it's on dirt, and so. Mm. Mice really want to be in that warm greenhouse. Oh, of
0: course. And so right. we
2: were planting things, and they were disappearing from below. They were tunneling. Oh my gosh! In wow. the, uh, the beds and just pulling the, from the roots down. You would see these plants just
0: disappearing. <laughs>
2: disappear. Holy cow! <laughs> of course. <laughs> so it's a constant battle to um, to fight with these these mice because they want our food as much as we do.
1: Yeah. So we, in our, our beds in the greenhouse there, we took everything apart this summer and kind of rejigged everything and filled up the bottoms of these, the uh, raised bed boxes that we have with rocks and gravel and things like that, just in an attempt to slow these mice down a little bit. Yeah. And actually this year, the, the damage from mice in there has been minimal.
0: Oh, I hope you're touching wood right now.
1: Yeah,
2: Yeah, there hasn't been really any damage at all this year. I think we've, well, fingers crossed.
0: Yeah, right. We've we've won
2: this battle at least. We might not have won the war, but we've (laughs) won the battle. I've got a
0: wooden desk here. I'm knocking on it for you. Uh, thank you, yeah, that's right. Oh, well, good luck with that. That's the first time I've heard anyone mention that that, yeah, the mice are going to eat your crops in the middle of winter, but it makes perfect sense, of course.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I've spoken yeah. to quite a few farmers on this podcast, and I'm always interested in knowing uh, where they're getting their their information from because not everyone comes from a succession plan. like they're they're not necessarily being handed this information down from, you know, their, their parents. Dave, it sounds as though that maybe you, you did learn a little bit, but I wonder if maybe you can talk a little bit about where, where resources come from for folks these days who are looking into starting doing what you're doing. I mean, obviously they can check out your channel, but where do you guys go when you're looking for new information?
1: We definitely look towards YouTube. Yeah. Right. Um, and One thing for us is that obviously, because we have a YouTube channel, we do watch a lot of YouTube as well. So we've managed to weed out a lot of uh, the less desirable channels, Mm, yeah, or or information that uh, (laughs) be careful there. Yeah, the less (laughs) less desirable information that either might not pertain to where we live, right, or just might be completely outdated. Yeah, that I also yeah go ahead.
2: Yeah. I also approach it from a scientific background. I often look for primary research articles, if it's something that would make sense for that. For example, I was looking into um, an alternative protein source for chickens raising uh, insects. So a popular one right now is called soldier flies. And uh, I've been trying to find actual studies on how best to raise them. And there's been a lot of work on that. That's actually in the primary research field. Um, it's a budding kind of enterprise. So so we try to kind of look everywhere. Like for raising of animals, often there's so many things um, online that a lot of veterinarians or uh, people that dedicate their lives to learn these things would actually disagree with. So it's really hard sometimes. And that's why you need to look at people's experience with it. And because even if you go to YouTube, there's a lot of good information there as well. But you have to kind of, as he said before, kind of weed through what people are just regurgitating. Where, why, how did they come up with those ideas? And uh, does it make logical sense? And maybe even for things that their lives don't depend on us, more like plants and stuff like that, you can just... Try it out as well, just to make sure what they're saying online makes sense. There's a lot of trial and error, as I've probably mentioned a few times here yeah. uh, on the World is Dead, because we haven't figured it out yet. We're still pretty new here, even though Dave does have a lot of, of background. But from my end, I'm definitely just trial and error every time.
0: Yeah, I mean, safe safe to do maybe with with some of the plants, but when the mushrooms are concerned in the forest, maybe. maybe. Maybe get a little bit of research done before the trial and error.
2: Oh my goodness, yes. No trial and error (laughs) with mushrooms. What's the saying? Every 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 mushroom is edible once?
1: No, every mushroom is edible, but some only
2: once. But some only once. Oh,
1: God. Yeah, Um,
0: very true. Uh, you made, you sort of jumped over to talk about your animals a little bit. I wonder if maybe we can talk more about that. Uh, you mentioned that you, that there was a pig involved in your processing this year, not raised on your, on your land necessarily, but what, uh, what kind of livestock are you keeping on the farm?
2: We currently have chickens, one turkey that's more of a pet and four rabbits.
0: Okay. And um,
2: the four rabbits are new to us. Uh, we yeah. just picked them up this fall, um, and they will be, The idea is for them to be meat rabbits. So we have three does and one buck and we'll be breeding them uh, for their offspring. And then the chickens, we have a a breeding stock of of them. And then there we hatch, we have an incubator that we hatch their eggs and that's our meat birds for the year. Mm -hmm. And then we have a rogue bunch of layers that just do whatever they want and yeah, they provide us with our free range eggs.
0: A rogue bunch of layers. I like that. Mm-hmm. Is, that is that another one yeah, of the scientific our- terms that you're throwing down for us? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> we actually had we had one hen over the summer that would disappear for a couple days at a oh, time. Wow. Really? And then eventually she disappeared for probably close to a week. And wow. we thought she was a goner. Yeah, we yeah. thought she was a goner because she would just go out in the bush here. And one day she came walking up with wow. 16 baby chickens that she had hatched out <gasps> out in the forest. Holy yeah. cow. Oh, wow. So, that is amazing. So
2: we, we, yeah. So we call her Mrs. Gump because she has her forest chicks. <laughs> and uh, she constantly broke out with them every day and would just take them around the property and and just teach them how to be the worst chickens ever because... <laughs> They would just destroy our gardens and just walk around everywhere. And Uh, so they were, there was quite entertaining though. And now they're all in the coop and because (sighs) it's winter, it's not so fun out there for them.
0: Right. Right.
2: um, Ideally you don't want them just wandering the wilderness, but most of the other chickens, they basically respect the enclosure we Mm -hmm. built for them because uh, they realize it's probably, I don't know if they realize that, but they tend to just stay in their their fenced in area, but yeah. she just wasn't one of those, and she would break out every day.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah. What little I know of chickens is is that they uh, they generally don't go far, and they almost always come back, um, which is why backyard chickens in an urban setting can sometimes be successful. Um, but disappearing for almost a week and and laying eggs in the woods. Um, that's again, I'm I'm not a chicken farmer, but that's a new one for me.
2: Yeah. So she was basically you can collect eggs for a couple weeks. Um, Mm -hmm. so she would slowly go out there, lay an egg a day until she decided she had enough eggs and then she had to sit on them. I don't know how she was able to do that in only about a week because usually the incubation time is about 21 days. Yeah. So you need to keep them warm at a consistent temperature um, for 21 days and then they'll start to hatch. So she must have just had just luck in terms of the temperature because she often came home like to the coop. So hmm. then she just okay. sat there and then came back with the mollusks. why they're all day old chicks at the same time. So she was able to collect 16 eggs and wow. then hatch them all at the same time that's amazing i don't know yeah. how rare that is the fact that she did that in the woods where we have a lot of predators i think that is slightly rare yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we knock on wood again knock on your table or chair what you were saying is yeah. we haven't had a lot of issues with predators yet okay yeah. um mainly because we have quite a fortified coop for them but wild animals tend to be able to uh Get around what we think is even our best defenses. Yeah. So
0: right.
2: yeah. I would have to say we've been quite lucky that we haven't had any um, mass, any mass mortalities from predators. There's been one or two from what we think might have been a hawk.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah.
2: Of the forest chickens, because when they were out on the loose. But other than that, really, we've been quite uh, fortunate.
1: Yeah, we get. On our on our cameras that we keep up around the property, we get bears, wolves, foxes, coyotes, things like that. Okay.
2: Eagles, foxes, very crows, consistently. hmm Consistently at the property.
0: But the main predators that you need to be concerned about are are uh, are the smaller, like the foxes and whatnot. They like those are the things you really have to be more concerned about.
2: The one I'm worried about the most is actually uh, weasels. Oh okay. And minks, cuz they're they are quite small and they can fit in the smallest hole and they will just kill all your chickens. Oh, right. Yeah. So um, the hawks and the uh, avian predators they'll pick off one at a time if mm-hmm. you, if you don't provide them with overhead protection. Yeah. Um but yeah, though the weasels are the ones that I'm the most I'm the most concerned about uh the foxes they uh if they the chickens are running loose Yes, they will be a threat, but where they are right now I don't see a huge threat from foxes. Yeah. They're actually quite big here too. At least the ones that we've seen on camera. We don't have okay. tiny foxes.
0: Yeah. No. Well, maybe we could talk a little bit of what you're doing uh to to get your chickens and, and your and your turkey and now your rabbits prepared for winters or anything. Special. I mean, when you make your coop, I'm assuming it is made for four seasons, but maybe not. Like, what do you, what, what kind of prep goes into getting them ready for the Christmas, <laughs> not the Christmas season, but the, the colder months?
2: So all that really depends on where you are in Canada, of course. Um, yeah. But you, there's a few things you have to think about: is the number of birds you have, um, and that's the key one, I would mm. say. So you have to okay. build the size of your coop. Um, around that. So if you build too big of a coop with too few birds, they're not going to be able to maintain an appropriate amount of temperature. Um, We do not heat our coop because one of the main reasons is uh, if there was a power failure, which when you're in the middle of nowhere that has lots of chances of happening, uh, then all of a sudden they'll be subject to cold weather that they have you know, have not acclimated to. Right. So right. only thing we heat is the their water and they're able to maintain uh, temperature. They're like enough body heat in order to survive yeah. our cold winters here. We do not insulate our coop here in Manitoba. We did. So our coop was insulated in Manitoba and you could also provide a heat source as long as it doesn't heat the whole area mm-hmm. so that somewhere they could go to get heat, but there's also the issues with fires. So if anything yeah, happens right. with that heat source in tons of straw and wood yeah, and right. dust and yeah. birds running around, it's such a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. So we've we've steered away from that. We're not saying that that's something that's wrong. It's just not something that uh, we feel safe doing and we don't feel as best for our birds. Yeah. Um, so you need to have fresh water available to them and you, no drafts drafts are bad wind and moisture is a lot worse than cold so you want to we do something that's called uh, the deep litter method yeah and Dave can describe what that means
1: yeah so it's allowing the the droppings from the chickens to remain in the coop and compost over the winter which provides not much but some heat as it breaks down and you just kind of keep topping up the bedding, your preferred bedding, whether that be possibly pine shavings or straw, mm-hmm. and just allow it to build up over the winter and don't empty your coop out until the springtime rolls around. That's the yeah. general overview of, the, of deep litter method. the deep litter method. And yeah. so you
2: keep them clean by constantly putting clean bedding on the top, but then the stuff on the bottom will be breaking down and providing that little bit of heat. Um, it's, not, it's not a significant amount of heat, but it, yeah. it's something, right?
0: So And I'm assuming that, that you're you're probably factoring in the kinds of birds that you're getting, uh, when considering Yeah, that, so
2: one thing that yeah, one thing that's important um is their crops. Uh you don't want birds
1: No, not the crops. Not the crops. They're combs.
2: Why do you say crops? <laughs> I don't know. know. <laughs> They're combs. The big things on their head with yeah. the, the red and the pointiness. Yeah. Uh, right. That's prone to uh, frostbite. Okay. So if you if you get birds with smaller combs, that's uh, better, because then they'll have less chance of having frostbite.
0: Are there breeds that the
2: fancier, that... their combs with lots of little pieces; uh, they can get frostbite and, and fall off.
0: So, are there breeds that are just better adapted uh, adapted to to living in the climate of Canada that you can just have a you know a coop that is that is uh, unheated, but they're actually more ready for the winters.
1: There are, definitely. Um, we have never really been uh breed specific oh, okay. with our chickens. Uh the majority of our chickens we got when we ended up here and they came from other local uh homesteaders in the area. Yeah. So they they were basically like a barnyard mix from folks who had been raising birds for quite a while here. So we knew that they would be birds that would be fine in this environment. Right. Yeah. Um, as far as specific breeds to specific climates, uh, I can't really, uh, I mean, there are, but yeah. I can't really name any that uh, that I have any experience with.
2: Yeah, that's something that we haven't focused on. As Dave said, it's more or less that we're like, if it this bird is able to grow here and survive here it's likely okay here so um yeah. a lot of the birds we a big batch of our birds uh, mother clucker and her babies we got from a Mennonite right so we know that she um and her 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 young were going to be fine here because they don't also heat their coops
0: so, yeah right
2: um, as far as well we didn't ask but um, yeah. that was our assumption which could be wrong but
0: well, I mean, it's interesting that, that you know we're you're you're basing the information you have off well, you're learning from your neighbors and from the community. And I think that that is that's a pretty a common answer that people give on this podcast is that so much of what you learn and uh, is based off of either experience or the experience of others. And the fact that you can have a community of people that are doing something similar to you and learn from them is is so important. I mean, having having these animals, I mean, on your farm, I wonder if maybe that has offered you any kind of um, different insight into living off the land. I mean, this is I'm still looking for the connection, right? And and obviously, the connection to the land is something that you guys have thought about, and it's factored right into your decision for becoming homesteaders. But the act of looking after animals, I wonder if maybe that has sort of broadened that that perspective or that connection for you.
2: It has definitely made us realize that um, as of right now, we cannot support larger livestock hmm. on our property. We decided to go with goats for a bit. Yeah. Um, they were the smallest goats that you can get. We got uh, Nigerian dwarfs, and we had one pygmy. And we actually decided to uh, give them up. We, uh, a great lady, um, took out them over mainly because we knew we could not supply all the straw and the hay and their feed that they needed um, from our own homestead and that we would never be able to sustainably raise them. And that's why we decided to look into rabbits because even though we do bring in the rabbits feed right now, there's a path I can see towards be able to supply their feed and you can also reduce the biomass down to um, just two rabbits and still have a sustainable source of meat um, wow. that we could sustain over time if there was any shortage that we weren't able to get enough feed that we would need to support the four goats we needed to have a sustainable yeah, uh, right. breeding yeah. supply. Same with our chickens. You can go down to very few chickens. Uh, chickens are very resilient to inbreeding. Hmm. Our, our rabbit, we chose the buck and the doe's in a specific way we actually had a lot of help from that from our friend who chose them for us but knew that we wanted a buck that was completely unrelated to the does just so that we can reduce the biomass on our property in times of scarcity and still have a sustainable um meat source on our property so that's definitely one thing we realized um that just just Looking around our land and saying, okay, we know we're bringing in the food now. Because, for example, with the rabbits, we bring in their feed because that feed has been scientifically engineered to be the best food source for those rabbits. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I'm looking to find ways available to grow my own. But in the meantime, I'm going to go with the best available food for them. Yeah. But if that's not available as I was saying and this is a long-winded answer then I know that I can reduce the biomass that I can support it and then still be able to rebound from that.
0: Um I mean you guys are are doing so much on this on this farm right now and I really appreciate the time that you're taking to talk to me about this. Uh, we we only have about a minute left or so. Uh, I I are you, guys, are you guys making maple syrup as well on top of all the other things that you're doing? Did I see that right in a video that you're also tapping your sugar maple trees? Absolutely.
2: That's one of the reasons <laughs> why we live here. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was a big part of uh, choosing this property specifically because okay. we, are right, we are right beside Lake Superior, So, but we're not on the lake. And one of the one of the choices that we had to make was having a very small piece of land with very few trees and uh-huh. being on the lake, or having a larger piece of land with tens of thousands of trees that we could tap to make maple syrup. Oh wow! Yeah.
2: So you know what we had to choose? Uh, yes,
0: it's a, it
1: no-brainer. a no-brainer. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and we also looking into tapping birch trees. So I tapped five last year, and okay. their syrup. It's so much different. than maple syrup. It's not a pancake syrup, um, but yes, there's so uh, many possibilities around us. And yeah, maple's I think part of Canadian, part of our blood. So. Yeah,
0: that's right. Well, yeah, we all eat maple there. syrup yeah. for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd be interested in knowing more about this this birch syrup. I, I think it's 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 a little. You need a little more of it, don't you, or quite a bit more of it in order to to yield um, a, a usable amount. Yeah. Is that right?
2: Yes, for sure. There's a lot so of water
0: in it, yeah.
2: Sugar maple trees, if you have the best ideal maple trees, I think the ratio is 40 liters of mm-hmm. sap, you get one liter of syrup.
0: Right, yeah. For
2: birth, that can be up to 110. Oof, uh, I think yeah. the rate somewhere between 80 and 110 liters of sap. I'm new to this, so don't quote me. Okay. Um, But it's somewhere in that range. Let's just say 100 to be safe. 100 to 1 for for uh, birch.
0: Wow. And what does that taste like?
2: And you can't boil it like you can with maple oh, syrup because okay. it's a lot more sensitive to high heat. It will burn, it will scorch, yeah. and it'll be disgusting. So you have to have it on the low simmer to boil, to to get off all the, the water out of it.
0: Right. So, so it it's a much longer. more
2: complicated process. Yeah. It takes longer, uh, much more complicated. A lot of people, they use reverse osmosis backwards. So uh-huh. people use reverse osmosis in their house to filter out the bad things from their water. But people that grow birch syrup, uh, grow birch syrup, <laughs> that make birch syrup, they use it to filter the water out from their their sap uh-huh. and keep good stuff. They also do that in maple syrup, but it's more important in birch.
0: And what is it? what does it taste like?
1: It's hard to describe, and I think most people that have tried birch syrup will say that. Yeah. (laughs) It's a very, it's a a savory flavor. It's closer to
2: molasses than it is to maple syrup.
1: Yeah. I mean, there is, there's a slight sweetness there, a tang. Mm. It's great for, uh, for meat, like meat rubs or sauces and things like that. Yeah. So it's, it's much different and much thicker than maple syrup great much so
2: very
0: it's not sweet you can't put <laughs> no. it on your pancakes it takes way longer to make it's way harder to make Amanda all the it's best we're trying yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right.
0: uh, you guys are a delight I thank you so much for talking to me I really appreciate this um, enjoyed the the growing winter season and hopefully we can chat again about your homestead
1: sounds great okay
0: Connected to the Land is a PV Industries podcast produced by Village Sound, and I'm your host, Ian Sherwood. A special thanks to this episode's sponsor, PV Mart, the 100% Canadian-owned, down-to-earth retail chain. If you enjoyed this program, you should consider subscribing. Also, you can check us out at connectedtotheland.info, our affiliated website and a great resource for homesteading, farming, and all things connected to the land. Thanks for listening.